Hello, everyone. Welcome again to the Rotten Horror Picture Show, the horror movie podcast where we talk about the Rotten Tomatoes. We talk about films off of the Rotten Tomatoes 200 Best Horror Movies of All Time list. My name is Clay, and with me, as always, is Amanda. How are you doing, Amanda? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, and we have a special guest with us today, someone I never get to do shows with, so it's nice to be able to get to chat for from time to time. Paul Bettany? Yes, Paul Bettany is on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Wes, Wes from our, our uh, umbrella corporation, the Pansky File, is here. Wes, how are you doing? Hail Payman. Hail Payman. <laughs> And we are talking about Hereditary, 2018's Hereditary, number 18 on our list with an 89% Rotten Tomatoes score. This, this, I'm always shocked when these newer ones end up so high, but I think this mm. might be one that we can talk about it later. But I don't know if it if it's 18 worthy, but it's probably deserves to sit pretty high. Um, Wes, what what's your history with this movie? This is a movie that we watched fairly recently, although my mind is kind of going. Um, it was probably a couple of years ago, me and Amy watched it. And um, it stuck out to me at the point that we watched it that it was horrifying and like a, mm-hmm. a, fa- a favorite of mine, like a, a movie that stuck with me and I couldn't kind of remember it in a way that other movies get lost in like the wash of time when you watch mm-hmm. them. Uh, I rewatched it for the first time this just for the show the other night and Amy watched it with me again and um, I have different opinions about it but I still really like it Um, it's still a favorite of mine not to spoil anything but I just think it's really strong and really interesting and really fascinating and uh, deserving to at least be on the list of 200 of the greatest horror films of all time anyway definitely Amanda what about yourself Uh, I think I've probably seen this three times i want to say maybe four maybe in pieces um i really like this movie i actually like it more each time i watch it i like it a little bit more the Mm -hmm. first time i watched it i was kind of like i just i found it really horrifying obviously and like beautifully crafted but like deeply off-putting um which makes sense (laughs) but yeah, it's it it's a it's a thinker, and it's definitely one that that grows. At least for me, I enjoy it and appreciate it a little bit more each time I see it. Did did either of you? How much knowledge of what the movie was about did you guys have before you saw it the first time? Probably nothing beyond. Probably nothing. Yeah. I knew I knew that people said it was very scary, and mm. that's what I knew going into it. And also that it was um, like a demon story at its heart, kind mm-hmm. of, or like that's the main idea behind it. But other than that, I didn't know anything. I didn't know about like any sequences or anything like that. Like I didn't know any descriptions of scenes before I saw it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I um, I think I even knew a little bit less than you did then, Wes, because I, I, I sort of knew, I knew about the miniatures and that being sort of the aesthetic and, and the, like a... a thematic thing going on through it and i knew it was kind of a family drama at the same time as it was a horror movie but i i didn't know anything beyond that and you see those miniatures and you go oh this is like a wes anderson movie so i'm sure it'll be charming and the (laughs) only person who will get harmed is the dog because he likes killing dogs in his movies for some reason. They won't kill Bill Murray. Huh. Definitely won't do that. Yeah. If he'd shown up as the neighbor or something, he would have been safe. That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. I uh, this, 
this is one where I think I saw this right before it got oversaturation, I think, because this was one kind of like mm-hmm. um, not quite as bad as like the Blair Witch, but this was one where it was like people were talking about it um, a lot. Yes. One, one scene in particular, I think, became very much a, a conversation point on the Internet. Yeah. And it just it, it was one where I was like, I knew of it. I think I saw the trailer once, but I'm pretty sure I actively avoided knowing much about it and i think going into the the trailer itself actually does a pretty good job of of kind of shielding you from what the movie's about which is nice um but i think going into this having the uh, least amount of idea of what really is going to happen is is only a benefit and uh yeah there there was some stuff in this that the first time i saw it was shocking is a good word to use and i do want to talk about that scene you're probably talking about amanda because i i i'm very conflicted about it but we'll get there mm. um so i'm surprised you think the trailer can ruin this movie in any way oh well this, Just, this you, mean, you mean beyond like reviewing shots and stuff yeah i think it's i think it's the the trailer can uh from what i remember the trailer kind of set it up as more of like a i think you came away a thinking ghost? it was going to be like a uh uh the, let's put it this way. The kid was going to play a, a larger role. Let's put it that way. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, it seems like, it's oh, it's a creepy kid the girl. The, the young girl. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Charlie. I think, it seems, I think it seemed like it was going to be like a creepy kid movie. And then it, it's, well, I guess technically it is, but not it in the way. It kind of is, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, Just for only 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's take a quick break. We'll play the trailer. And uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about Hereditary. Come on, Peter. Yes, you're suing. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. Oh my God! She isn't gone. She had private rituals, private friends. Who's gonna take care of me? You don't think I'm gonna take care of you? But when you die. She wasn't altogether there. At the end. stress on my family. (laughs) 
Okay, Hereditary from 2018, directed by Ari Aster, written by Ari Aster, starring Tony Collette, Millie Shapiro, Gabriel Byrne, Alex Wolf, and some creepy extras wearing nothing but a grin. <laughs> Amanda, what happens in Hereditary? When the matriarch of the Graham family passes away, her daughter and grandchildren begin to unravel cryptic and increasingly terrifying secrets about their ancestry, trying to outrun the sinister fate they have inherited. That's a little misleading, I think. <laughs> I mean, these generally are. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like it's a two-hander with the mom and the son trying to figure out the creepy ghost history of the family, which is very much not that. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a mean, hard it's a hard movie to describe, that. I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's I guess we'll get into it, but it, it's not a movie that the logline is going to ever really sum up appropriately right. without it being yeah. something longer than a logline at right. that point, yeah. you know. Right. <laughs> well, uh guys, some things you will find in this movie include mm-hmm. <laughs> uh delicate hobbies. Very delicate. Poor coping mechanisms. Are there any good coping mechanisms, really, though? I mean, these are real bad ones, That's true. These are exceptionally bad. Yes. Uh, (laughs) The only eulogy I want given at my funeral. Yeah, I was thinking that, too. That's a a really... uh, (laughs) Did you hear about... There was a thing uh, I heard about a while back about this guy who started a business of um, people would pay him before they died to show up at their funeral and give a eulogy telling everybody who came to the funeral how much they hated them. So like oh. it was like a message from beyond the grave kind of thing to to tell oh, the God. truth about how they felt about everyone, all their loved ones. It's a great, great scam. I wish wow. I had thought of it. <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, where were we? Ghostly drawings of Eugene Levy. Yeah, the, every drawing in that little book made by that ghost of like <laughs> Eugene Levy. <laughs> And uh, the most questionable parenting known to man. We have given this award out before. Of, <laughs> I wish I could remember what we gave it to. Yeah. Because I would love to reassess in light of uh, having watched this more recently. Yes. This is probably top five, if not number one, of most questionable parenting in a movie we've seen. Yeah. I do have to... Yeah. Um, I do have to say, when you guys do do this runner of questionable parenting, I do mm-hmm. feel a bit like um, uh, we're in the, a few good men right now, and you're <laughs> you're trying to talk to me about like Marines drinking alcohol and doing push-ups until one of them gets sick and dies or something. I'm going, you don't know what the fuck's going on out here. You don't know what the fuck. You can't handle the truth because yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of questionable parenting in horror movies, but it's I, I guess it's just because there's no such thing as non-questionable parenting is is like the way that's, that I, I walk away from fair. it. So. I, yeah, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, thanks for ruining the joke, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm done. I'll see you guys. I yeah, don't like the yeah, movie. movie yeah, yeah. Now we know why he off. wanted to come on so he could really take us to task for our. Oh, my God. That company hired. Who hired him to come tell us, tell us how he really feels? Yeah. What, it isn't a lot of died. movies, though. It's a lot of horror movies is the well, theme I, of familial relationships. It kind of it makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's like the most. Uh, the it's the Touching. most re- it's, yeah, yeah most relatable form of of dysfunction and 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 uh, uh, I guess terror in one's life is stuff that has to do with the family and and it's 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 an easy thing to empathize with. I mean, you're giving out the award prematurely because the <laughs> the answer for 
most questionable parenting is the Babadook, which I think is on the list, right? Ooh, it that's is. you're opening up a door there, Wes, because Amanda wrote a whole paper on the Babadook. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the, the Babadook is the most um, interesting horror movie about uh, parent child relationships. So it's a good movie. Hopefully you'll get yeah, to it. Yeah, no, it's 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 fantastic. And I will I will disagree with you because I think when we talk about questionable parenting, we're coming at it for from an angle of like there's some active badness going on. Like mm. there there the, the parent is doing something at some point that is actively not the right choice at the time. Mm-hmm. I would argue in the Babadook she makes mistakes. But I think there's more of a gray. I, I think it's it's definitely questionable parenting. Don't get me wrong. But I think when you compare her to uh, Annie in this movie, Annie is a much worse mother. Yes, yeah, and <laughs> yes. Annie's and Annie's By mom far. as well. Yes, yes, yeah. There's generations of questionable parenting in this. Although movie. Although you, I, I guess at their core, and I don't want to turn into a Babadook thing, but at their core, mm. they're both mothers who have been pushed too far. Which is where their their questionable behavior comes from because they're stressed out by a lot of things. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely true, and I actually it, I'm glad you brought up the Babadook because I thought about it a lot when I was rewatching this because I did <laughs> write a paper on it a few months ago, um, and I saw more in common with it this time than I think I had realized previously. I think the differences are important though. Yep. Because I, I think the mother in the Babadook is, she's so alienated from everyone around her and, and has no community and no, no, nobody around her to try to help her raise this quote unquote troubled son. Whereas a- Annie in this movie, she almost comes across as a little spoiled. Like, obviously she's had a lot of like, difficulty and trauma and hardship and her relationship with her own mother was like horribly dysfunctional but at the same time she's got this like uber supportive husband who's the father of their kids the kids seem like good kids they're not like you know they're not acting out they're like i guess charlie does a little bit but not I, I don't know. They're just not to the extent of the son and the Duke, and, and they're clearly a well-off family. She's clearly a well-known artist. She's getting gallery shows. I just think there's like a difference like between the two of them in terms of how they're coming at these problems. And I'd join us. They're, they're bo- I was ahead, just going to say, join us on our episode about the Duke where we talk about, I don't know, it follows. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about hereditary yeah. on the Duke episode. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, no, no, I think fine. that... Because it'll feed into hereditary, but I think they're both alone for different reasons. Where the the mother in the Mm. Babadook is isolated and dealing with stuff and doesn't have a support network. Annie, it is Annie in this, right? The Tony Collette's character. Yes. Yes. The 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 main problem with the family in Hereditary is that they're bad communicators with each other. Right. There's a lot of scenes where. they can't really get what their point is across to each other, and they tend to lash out at each other when that happens. The, din- the dinner scene is very famous yeah. for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a family that I think, I don't think it's said in the movie, but the father was originally conceived to be a psychiatrist who met Annie as a patient and then married her. You know, um, oh. that's that's interesting because one of the things uh, we Amanda and I were chatting while we were watching it, and I, I, I mentioned, I was like, do you think it's, 
supposed to be an important point that Gabriel Byrne is like 22 years older than Tony Collette. And yeah. that's that's interesting. That's that's some backstory that they don't give you. That it's good to know, but I don't know if it really adds anything. But I'm I'm glad it's there. I I think it takes. I think I think no. If that was true and it was in the thing, and it's actually something that Astor had planned on instead of just some internet thing that I saw on a couple of sites. I think that the the reason it takes away from it is that it really like Gabriel Burns' character would be the worst psychiatrist oh, totally. in the world. Basically, yeah. like he he, yeah. would, he would be so horrible at his job that it would be weird that that's his job. So I'm, I'm glad they don't stress it. But you, that's the relationship that you're supposed to get is like a a failed a failed therapeutic session between all of them. Mm. So I, I do think she's mm. alone and I think that that's important and not to undersell the fact that um, her father starved himself to death and her brother hung himself at 15 for, <laughs> oh, on the, uh, the trauma scale. Yeah. For, for because their mother was trying to put people inside of him. Right. Yep. Literally. Well, I, you know, like I think your mom does. I think uh, that that dinner scene is kind of the crux of the movie to, to a certain extent because that's where everything kind of comes out and I think the interesting thing that comes out there too is what the son says to her about not having any accountability for herself. Like she does, she has Mm -hmm. seems to have no accountability about anything, which she then voices later on when she has that sleepwalking dream where she tells the son that she never wanted him and she was forced to have him and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She seems to be, Part of her coping with this stuff seems to be avoiding all responsibility for any part of it, as small as it might be. Um, and that's that's what makes this movie so fascinating, so interesting to me, I think, because it's a it's a scary movie. It features the scariest thing I can think of as an artist, which is the show us some progress email. When I anytime I see one of those emails from someone I'm working with, I just I shut down for days. Um but Caitlin finds you floating up at the ceiling. Yes, basically, yeah. But it, you need to make another uh, make another trip to Michael's. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go buy more balsa wood. But Clay, you draw <laughs> comic books. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's the best kind of metaphorical horror movie where the the monster stuff is happening, and it is. Um, bolstering the uh, subtext and emotional and character work, but it's not like rubbing your face in the theme of the movie because I don't think, I think as as crazy as the shit that happens in this movie is, a lot of these scenes are very naturalistic and feel very honest as far as the way they're played mm-hmm. and the things that people are saying to each other. And I think a lesser movie would call out what they're doing a lot more um, uh, gratuitously. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say that this is on literally, this is the final, final mention of the Babadook. I would say that I prefer what the, I would prefer the Babadook's take on what it's talking about to hereditary, right? Like I think that what I think hereditary is doing is it's doing like a lesser version of a Babadook statement. And it's kind of talking about like, obviously it's the things that you pass on through family and the difficulties of like, do you have a kind of fate on your own or are you totally bound to your genetics and things like that? Like how far does the demon blood in you carry into your children? Mm -hmm. I don't think he really gets into it in any kind of interesting or thought provoking way that I think the Babadook does. But what I think this movie does uh, better than the Babadook is that this movie is legitimately terrifying mm. outside of that. So 
it's a, it's got this scary. It excels in it excels at being a better horror movie than the Babadook does, but I think it's less interesting as a, like a concept that, of what they're talking about. But I don't think it's a bad mm. idea what they're discussing. Well, so not I'm going to do this thing again that I do. Um, I'm finishing my I'm finishing school right now, and the paper I'm writing is all about uh, intergenerational trauma and uh, guilt oh and complicity inherited down through generations. So, so, so this was basically home. Can you, can you, do you get write-offs in school? Is this kind of a write-off, oh a homework write-off? I Don't really, file I your really, taxes I yet. Wish. Yeah. Yeah. When you, yeah. When you file your grad, grad school taxes, is that how it works? Yeah. I don't know. I, <laughs> do I get a couple extra, uh, like tenths of a point on my GPA because of this? Hey, uh, unfortunately not. Can you, if you want to um, say that you are technically an intern on this, if that gets you extra credit, that. <laughs> Thanks. I, I appreciate the offer. Um, no, but, but so I think the thing, the connection between this, this movie hereditary and the Duke, I think they're doing kind of, it's almost like two sides of the same coin where you're inheriting from your predecessors in your family. You're inheriting certain, you know, in this, it's all like about demonic blood and, and, and this like legacy of kind of evil in the Duke, The mother eventually manages to, take some responsibility for that even though it's not entirely her fault and mm-hmm. do something about it to save her son whereas in this movie the father is kind of completely disconnected from what's going on he, he's in a lot of ways in deep deep denial and just won't even admit that stuff is as bad as it is until it gets much too far past the point of no return and Annie is kind of the same way where like Clay you brought up that in during the dinner scene, the son kind of says, well, what about you? You don't take responsibility for this either. Right. And she, throughout most of the movie, is kind of denying her responsibility for anything that's really going on in her family. And whereas in the Babadook, when the mother realizes the part she has played, there's like this redemption arc. In this movie, Annie realizes eventually that this is her fault. But it's too late, and she can't save her family, and everything still goes to hell. Do you? How do you guys feel about this movie? Do you feel like it sidesteps having to really make a statement about this stuff by ending the way that it does? Because I, I feel like when you get into this sort of um, these sorts of stories, you kind of have to make a decision whether or not you're using that stuff as a uh a, a backdrop or if you're actually trying or backdrops not is too dismissive of a word but basically if, if you're trying to make the metaphor the thesis of the movie kind of which it sounds it's been a while since i've seen the babadook but it seems like the babadook does that more than this does whereas this one this one ends with the freaky scene with the sun being inhabited by the demon uh who is now the reincarnation of the daughter who died or something i think <laughs> do you find the, that the that's... spirit the spirit has passed yeah into into him finally the ultimate goal is achieved where a male body has been found for yes. one of the kings of hell do you find that's in line with 
the the way that they deal with this stuff, or do you guys feel like it's a bit of a sidestep of actually having to to say something about it? Amanda, you can go first. Oh, I was going to let you go because I feel like I just talked a ton. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I think, um, I think this ending is appropriate for what this movie is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I won't go to like it is helpful to compare it to the Babadook, but what this movie's saying about hereditary and genetics and stuff and family relationships is that it's basically like the science version of it, which is that like you're you can't escape your genetics in a way like mental illness or whatever will run in your family. And there is no way to kind of avoid it, no matter how much you want to deny that this is going to happen. Mm. So hereditary is more, the damage is inevitable to be passed on to you, whether you're not, you're considering trauma or you're just considering it some kind of like bloodline thing that you've got going on. Um, so I think it's appropriate the way that it ends because mm. there is no escape and Annie trying to bury her head in the sand or not having the courage to, not do what she knows she has to do when she's when she's trying to miscarry and things like that like she's she's scared of those moments because she knows the badness is probably coming for him but at the same time it's hard to pull the trigger that way and then when it comes to the end you know that she was right and that like they the badness is going to track with this kid and i think it's just more scientific version than what the babadook does is it's kind of the redemption story of being a mother mm-hmm. which is about like the incredible hatred you could have for your child but is overcome by love at the end and that that's the difference to me this is a much more cynical take sure. on family mm-hmm. than sure. babadook is which is why babadook is more interesting to me but i think that this one is more horrific mm. yeah i i would say i think i i do think thematically it's a little bit of a sidestep mm-hmm. because none of these characters actually have a real confrontation like like sure annie annie and god why am i blanking on the son's name peter uh, peter yes. um peter and steve is a dad oh steve <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, um, that cunt steve, yeah, steve yeah. Yeah, yeah. fucking steve um hey man he no. made her dinner and she did not show him any respect <laughs> I, I do want to say that the reason he is removed is because it's not his bloodline, right? So, like, the reason he's a kind of distant person in this is because his genetics are not playing a part in any of this stuff. Sure. And I think that that's, like, appropriate for that character. Well, it's it's funny. No, I, Sorry not to, to jump in, Amanda, but... Uh, no, go for it. I actually... I said... Uh, Amanda mentioned when we were watching, he's like, man, Steve is just so ineffectual. And I said, yeah, he's... He's so ineffectual that I the first time I watched this, I thought he was in on the plot because that's usually mm-hmm. the kind of turn that they have for a character who's sort of sidestepping and ga- he's not gaslighting, but he's not he's not on board with all the crazy shit that she's pulling up. Um, and usually a character like that does that in a movie like this because it turns out it's like uh, John Cassavetes in, in Rosemary's Baby where he's always like, yeah, you're fine. It's nothing to worry about. It's like, oh, it's because yeah. he's in on the shit. Um, but I think you're right, Wes. I think it's it's more that he doesn't understand what's going on because it doesn't really actually affect him the way that it affects Annie and Peter. He doesn't. He has the... He has the shitty tail end of the relationship with the mother. He doesn't have Annie's entire life relationship with the mother. And yeah, I mean, what, what, what are you going to say to a woman who has suffered 
the kind of trauma she has. Right, like right. The, the best you could do is pat her on the arm and be like, oh, I'm sure it'll get better. He, well, he if has he's, no if he's her psychologist, this. then he's better come yeah. up with something. Yeah, he, should, he should be prescribing her some pills and stuff instead of this. Yeah. yeah. Well, so on, honestly, the, the reason that that doesn't really cut it for me, um, the argument that it's not really about his bloodline or whatever, is that in the children it is. Like when I watch this, I almost think he's like their stepdad. Like he he doesn't mm. strike me. Like I, I just feel like he should that character should be more invested at a minimum in the kids. Even if he's like Annie is on her own track, I couldn't possibly understand all the the hell she's been through with her mother and the complicated feelings around losing her. I just feel like he would still be a little bit more like wait a minute. <laughs> like Mm. I, maybe just a little more involved with what's going on with peter especially after uh charlie's uh road road accident <laughs> yeah i don't um I, I i really i really i think i relate to the character of steve because he, he has two excellent scenes that i think really describe where his headspace is at with his family so the first one is when um it's probably my favorite scene between Colette and Byrne is when mm. he goes in and he's been making dinner and he goes in mm-hmm. and she's rebuilt the little scene of the accident and is painting yeah. the head. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me sums up the character there because their their interaction is that he comes in and this is clearly a thing that she does. And so you you get a sense that he is treading lightly around her and this is finally a thing of a breaking point. He has a thing like he has a very like true to life relationship thing where you have this sort of passive aggressive fight and it's like, fuck it, I made dinner, like come and get it. I don't give a fuck what you do. <laughs> yeah. And then walks out. <laughs> and the other thing is after their dinner scene when Colette's when Tony Collette storms off, Annie storms off, the camera lingers on the father and the son. And the son is sitting there, and Gabriel Byrne picks up his knife and fork, then sort of thinks about it puts his head in his hand and then just touches his son's hand with his hand. He puts his like his hand on him mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. goes back and puts his fork and knife down. You just get the sense he's a father who's a, who has a little bit of trouble dealing with all the sort of traumatic people in his life and sure. he's not sure what to do with them. I don't find him distant. I just find him unsure of what the best way to go around this incredibly disturbed family is. And... I think it's really effective. I think that he's caring. He clearly loves his kids, but he he's not the character who can be the loving dad that sort of saves them from this situation mm-hmm. because again, I think his bloodline separates him from that relationship. And I I think one of the 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 great things about this movie is when it comes to that stuff, like the the thought and consideration put into each of these characters on a dramatic level is just as um considered if not more than the horror stuff because you've got three characters who are dealing who who have who are having very different reactions to this stuff it's not like it's not just like the uh the dinner scene where everybody gets to scream at each other this is the big <laughs> acting scene where everybody screams at each other she has a very specific way she's acting the son has a very specific way he's acting and gabriel Byrne has a very specific way he's acting and it really does paint a a really well rendered picture of how this family is is dealing with this stuff and and i think he plays his part really well and they're also 
The movie drops you in an interesting scene where he's been dealing with the mother before the movie starts, right? Mm. Like the mother is living mm. with them and there's all kinds of weirdness about Annie getting back in with her mother. She's hesitant to do it. She doesn't know if she wants to do it. So there, there is this whole, there is this buildup of conflict that's happening before we start watching their adventure together. Right, right. And so they're in a space where they've been conflicting the entire time. And I think that it, it just naturally kind of falls into that. And to Clay's point, I, I would have a hard time finding if there's a better acted horror movie out oh, there. Yeah. Because I, mm. I think the cast is like uniformly amazing at what they oh, do. Yeah. I think everyone is fantastic in it too. And it, it, it really helps sell the... Aster had something... I have the Blu-ray and he has some special feature thing. And he was just saying that like he prefers horror movies where you actually care about the people who die. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of a dig at like the Friday the 13th stuff and things like that, yeah. which is just kind of murder for murder's sake. Mm-hmm. But he thinks it's... It's only truly horrifying if you get to know the people before they're killed. And right. I would kind of agree with him. I think that this movie works both as a horror movie and just as a drama uh, in and of itself. Well, it's funny. Yeah. I, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I actually said something similar to that on the last Friday the 13th podcast plug for the Patreon, actually, if anybody wants to hear that, <laughs> um, where... I had heard uh, Sean Cunningham, the creator of Friday the 13th, say, oh, the secret to a great horror movie is is having a bunch of characters that are so terrible that people can't wait to see them get killed. And I'm like, no, the secret to a great horror movie is having characters that are you do care about because mm-hmm. otherwise, otherwise you're just watching a snuff film, basically. Like the best, even in Friday the 13th movies, the best Friday the 13th movies are the ones with the most interesting characters that are kind of like fun to watch. This is not that kind of movie, obviously, but I think the, the the same idea holds true. Where it's that's where the tension and drama comes from, and the and the and the suspense and the worry. You're not gonna you're not gonna say don't go down into the basement to someone you can't wait to see go down into the basement and get their head cut off. Yeah, it's kind of I mean it's kind of a cowardly creative dodge. There's a, a video game series called Hitman, which is based around you're a hitman going around killing people like your mm-hmm. missions are just you have to kill people in various ways and mm-hmm. the way that they the way that they get around that is they make your targets extremely unlikable people right so that there's there's not as much pushback yeah. about what you're doing in the game <laughs> and it's it's that kind of a thing it's like it, it takes a little bit more of like creative uh testicular fortitude to actually <laughs> create people okay. that you feel bad about doing things too and i think they they do it here yeah, so there there were two pieces of trivia about this movie that I read. Um, one of which was that Aster wrote explicit and detailed backgrounds for each character before he even wrote the movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can you and you can see that in the interaction between them and in the movie that resulted because they are each of them so fully realized and yeah. have such complete personalities that feel like real people. Um, even if they're sometimes unlikable people, they feel real. Um, the other bit of trivia that I really enjoyed was when they were casting this, uh, I guess uh, Gabriel Byrne worked with the actor who plays Peter in the past. And then the actors who play Peter and Charlie had worked together or knew each other from school or yeah, something they, like they went that. to the same acting academy, mm. the, uh, the two yeah, child so, actors. Yeah, so Tony Collette was the only one who had never met anyone on like that she was then working with and and they replicated that feeling of like alienation that she has from her family mm-hmm. by picking people she like literally didn't know, which I just thought was like 
a clever way to kind of build in that feeling from the very beginning. Mm. Um, speaking to the uh, writing the backstories for the characters, I think that stuff is it's it's really undersold about how important that can be because I think how important it can be to do that, but not necessarily uh, put it out on the table in the in the movie itself, like literally. Yeah. Because I think, like you're saying. You can feel what's going on. That you can feel the history and the relationship that these characters have that that you don't see within the uh, time frame of the beginning and the end of this movie. You don't have to go into it. You don't need to have the backstory scene where they talk about shit that happened in the past. It all it all works itself in because of the way that the characters act in the situation. And this is one of those movies where <clears throat> Amanda, you and I have kind of you've we've talked about this a lot where we're kind of more drawn to movies like this, where you're the story you're getting is the story you're getting. And it's not really, there's not a lot of, uh, 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 superfluous backstory being peppered in for the sake of just filling in the blanks. You're letting the characters, you're learning the characters through their actions, not being told what they, what they've done previously. Yeah, there were no uh, conspicuous flashbacks to the grandmother still being alive. Yeah, she is such a big presence in the movie, and she's ne- she's not in it. You see, yep. like, yeah. two photographs of her, but you get the sense that she was this, like, force that just mm-hmm. weighs, shadows over everything that's that's happening. Yeah, I mean, she caused the initial breakup and the whole reason that Charlie had to become her target was because her mother wouldn't allow Peter to see her mother at that point. So there's this whole, there's this whole like family strife thing that's going on before the movie even starts that Mm. gives you this sense of like, it, it a enables the plot to work the way that it does because Peter isn't immediately her target from the very beginning. And it just gives you a sense of like, this is the kind of, um, it feeds into the difficulty that Annie is having with her mother and this like, this ex- expectation that um, you're supposed to do things for your mother. She has a line where I loved her, and you, you kind of don't believe her at the same time. Mm. Um, and it, it's it's neat. It's, it's just a um, – the details are left off the page, as you were saying. Uh, I think my favorite example is that she – a worse movie would have a reason. She'd be like, you have to take your sister to the party. You know your sister doesn't have a lot of friends in this whole right. town. Right. Right. It's like they <laughs> – she just makes her she just does it because it's like just do something nice for your sister and it doesn't get into it and I think that all that stuff adds up nicely. Yeah. How how do you guys feel about the I, I find one of the interesting things about this how the perspective and the focus kind of shifts a bit because it does kind of feel like it's when it starts it's a little bit more focused on Charlie which I think probably is a little bit of a of a misdirect for when she's abruptly taken away from the from the story, and then it kind of shifts to Tony Collette, and then ultimately it shifts onto onto the son. And not to say that the son isn't involved with the rest of it, but there seems to be a clear kind of like shifting of of who gets more focus in the story. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it is just it, it, a lot of it. I assume is just to kind of do the red herring of the girl. The uh, Charlie dies twenty minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it's mm-hmm. done to disguise that. And then after that, it's the mother son relationship, which is really focal to 
Heyman coming back in the long run anyway. So I think I think that you have to focus on those two and the the whole because that's the only way that the paint thin or burning alive situation works out too, right, right. is if you have those two who are left uh, towards the end. It, it, it's good. It bounces them all and it ignores burn obviously as it as it <laughs> yes. needs to. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I think I think it works. Yeah, I, I I think it. I agree that it's kind of a, a function built out of needing to set things up in a certain way to tell this specific story. Um, I think by focusing more on Charlie at the beginning, it's not only feeding into that that red herring sort of setup and 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 adding to the shock when she dies, um, but it's also dropping these little hints that something is something is going on with charlie like Mm -hmm. there's something not right with her from the very beginning like her kind of reactions to the things going on around her don't really jibe like she doesn't really show a lot of emotion um her snipping the head off the bird the dead bird that flies into the window Mm -hmm. at school um i don't know i think it seeds a lot of those behaviors that tell you that there is something about her or something was done to her that has made her this way. And then that kind of lays this sort of groundwork for the whole like payment thing that ends up happening and, and how, you know, I mean, my, my question is, is she ever, is Charlie ever not payment? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's hard. She, she does the clicking thing. All the time, uh-huh. which becomes a characteristic of people who are possessed by payment. Um, and but she does have the, she has the scene where she's doing something else and sees the flash of light that seems to happen before you get possessed by him. Uh huh. So I don't know. I I actually don't know if she's possessed the entire time. If if she is, um, I don't really know why it doesn't manifest itself more strangely than it does. I guess maybe that's the downside to Payman being in a female body is that he can't do what he wants to do or something. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure. But she does have a couple of confusing things about that, like the fl- the flashing light and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be like the the reason that she is a little bit um, odd and different is because it's Payman trying to drive a trying to trying to drive a car he doesn't have the keys for. Right, yeah. <laughs> he can't drive stick. He's, he's just, yeah, yeah, this thing just, is just... Was, or he can only drive stick, right, is really yes, what we yeah. should say. <laughs> um, the other thing that I find, I, I find interesting about the, the, the perspective shift is I think what's missing from this that would be in a lesser movie is this sort of third act catharsis or um, resolution between Annie and Peter which very much does not happen. It's yeah. there's there's a point in this movie where I was thinking any other movie this is the climax and it's the séance scene where she drags them all to the down to the living room and they start doing the the thing with the the candle look blowing up and it's the when she first tries showing them what's going on. And I was, and it actually happens right around the hour and a half mark. And I was like, yeah, I mean, if you, if you wanted to, if you, if I was a, if I was an executive who was like, we need to get this movie down, I'd be like, this is the end of the movie. This is where you start doing all your crazy ghost stuff. And this is where the mother turns to the son and says, I'm sorry. I love you. I was wrong. Let's get through this together. 
what is grief but exploding candles persevering mm-hmm. and then you know <laughs> then you've got you've got a serviceable but unremarkable horror movie they don't do that they keep it going and that's actually like the next step down the road and even the the ultimate scene it's it's tough to even come away thinking she really even kind of cares what happens to peter because at the end he's not like present for the the book burning sequence and then after that she's gone she's done for she's uh turning into the the corner the corner goblin would cuts her own head off like yep. it's it's all on peter <laughs> at that <laughs> it's all on peter at that point and there is no chance for them to kind of like uh resolve the issues they've been battling in the in it, throughout the whole movie it's it's a really like you're saying it's a, it's a really cynical kind of way to to do a story like this where it's like no this stuff is being passed to him and there's no way around it because the only person in this movie that he can have some sort of resolution or catharsis with is now removed from the story as well. Yeah. I mean, on the yeah. on the, the horror level, it's the passing of the demon to him mm-hmm. and that sort of bloodline thing. On the family level, I don't think you can really um, truthfully reconcile the way that she feels about him. Like it's a he's basically an unwanted kid and she tells him that much right. and i think it's like the movie can't go back at that point and say uh well we can reconcile and get, get through mm-hmm. this like i realized i realized that my <laughs> my subconscious hatred for you has been wrong for the past 16 years well um, technically technically they do kind of hedge that by implying that that sequence is not is a dream right you're talking about when yes, she's but it, I, it's clearly her subconscious right. coming yes. through. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, see, so it, it doesn't actually get stated to each other, but it's hard to get around that in terms of the the, uh, the characters and right. stuff. Right, right. Yeah, I, I I just think the the cynicalness of it is one of the film's strengths, but I think it's not as, um, it's more daring than it is insightful, I guess, sure. is my sort of takeaway from it. It's um, It's very cynical and very dark, but it's not really... Um, at a certain point, the family drama just kind of passes the torch to the horror thing. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you kind of have to give up on the family story a little bit, which I don't mind doing, and it's not that it's a a bad thing. But once it moves into that final sequence of uh, the corner goblin and going into the (laughs) treehouse and stuff like that, that's when it just becomes a horror movie at that point that kind of abandons all the family stuff, you know, as a stylistic choice. And technically, there's nobody left to deal with the because everybody's right. either burned <laughs> alive say, or everyone's been yeah. annihilated so um but I, actually i think you know this is all making me think about why back to the kind of the why do we see bad or questionable parenting so often in horror movies and on top of all the reasons you guys listed at the top i think there's also the mechanism of like we all remember being kids Sure. And like for most of us, when we were kids, we lived in a world where we had at least one parent or one trusted adult who we relied on, who who provided some sort of stability or safety for us. Mo- again, most of us. Um, and in these horror movies, that's stripped away. Like that's by, by making the parent like a, a quote unquote bad parent or somebody who's made bad decisions. Um, 
it does like it it just separates the parent and child in these movies and and leaves this kid extremely vulnerable to all of this really horrifying stuff and yeah, yeah it just pulls the audience in cuz cuz we can all connect to that i mean yeah the, the parents here are the mother annie is the opposite of a protector because right. if she had miscarried peter would not become a demon it would not resurrect hell on earth or whatever happens at the end or, of this movie or if she had not given in to her mother and given her charlie she could have just separated herself from her mother and i mean peter seemed like he was fine <laughs> yes yeah, so, but I, but i think that thematically this movie doesn't support the family not being together because their bond is the blood. So right, right. So they're they're kind of stuck together, in the sense that there is no way to get around this. And if she had miscarried and not had him, everything would be fine. And there's this tremendous. It's almost like the um. You rem- did you see Arrival, Amanda? Clay, you remember Arrival? Mm-hmm. Like it's oh, it's. it's- it's kind of, it's the Amy Adams alien movie, but it's kind of similar yeah, to yeah, that, yeah. which is that knowing that you're going to have a kid who dies, do you still go through with it? Mm. And mm. Um, they don't really touch on that profoundly in this movie in the way that Arrival does, but it's kind of that same thing. It's this guilt that Annie has for whatever happiness Peter brought to her is going to be undone in a horrible way for no reason that she could control and is also her fault on some level. <laughs> and like that's yeah. the horror of it. Yeah. Well, to to uh move topics slightly, um I want to talk about the decapitation scene. Yes. Because, is that the scene you were talking about before? Yes. Is that the scene you're saying that is the scene that everyone remembers? I well I think so. That's what I thought okay. anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um although I think the other scene everybody remembers is the smiling naked guy in the closet because that shit is <laughs> fucking creepy as hell. <laughs> absolutely my nightmare just like an old dude nude in my house grinning at me in the dark that was the guy who touched your feet that time when you thought you were having a night terror (laughs) that's a a story for another podcast Mm -hmm. i do think we're done with the um the family stuff and as you're saying as i think you're trying to do clay it's like it's good to move into what i think actually makes this movie terrifying yeah um if i can i just want to i just want to say my theory about why i like this one's scares so much sure because uh as we mentioned on the the other freddy krueger movies and stuff like that i fucking hate jump scares Mm. i really hate them (laughs) both on terms of like i don't like when they happen i don't like being scared by them and i don't like how manipulative they are which is basically a jump scare is you know something's going to happen and then they overload your senses with a loud noise and a shocking thing that you see. And you just kind of go like, ah! And then the character, like <laughs> Freddy Krueger, chases the person around the room, you know, <laughs> something right, like that. Right. But it, they're just kind of manipulative. What, what Aster does is really strange. I think there's maybe two what I would consider true jump scares in this movie, which is one where the bird hits the window and then the other one where the candle explodes all mm-hmm. of a sudden while they're doing the seance. Mm-hmm. Um what he does instead is like the antithesis of a jump scare, which is that the most horrifying sequences in this movie are a character does something and the character will look into the corner of a room and the shot, mm-hmm. will, the shot will move to the corner of the room. And the balance of the shot is such that you see something there. Right. right? right. So it's, it's a jump scare in that the camera quickly jumps into something that's kind of a terrifying image. But you can't actually see 
what it is. So instead of the opposite reaction of a jump scare, which is to like shut your eyes and jump away and pull yourself out of it, hmm. what Astor does is he makes these sort of like hidden picture shots where you are drawn into trying to see what you're looking at in there. And the more you look at it, the more horrifying it is right. at a certain point. Yeah. Right. And it's it's like the opposite of a jump scare. And I think it's so clever and so scary and so unsettling. Uh, I still think that a scary shot in this is what you were saying. Was, it's the guy who's standing in the doorway yeah. at the end. Yeah. It's like horrifying. Yeah. It just, yeah. uh, and the more that you look <laughs> at it, the scarier it gets. It's, it's, really, it, it's quite an accomplishment. I think that that's the reason why I like the terror of this one so much more than something like um, Nightmare or mm. uh, Friday the 13th or anything. Yeah, mm. it's... Um, it reminds me of of what we were talking about on the innkeepers where mm-hmm. the most the, the the thing that that worked for me so much with uh, with the innkeepers or a movie like paranormal activity and a movie like this is when they realize that the true terror is not sending you back in your seat because they've just flashed something in front of you it's causing you to lean forward and you're 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 looking into the shot and your mind just starts going crazy trying to figure out what if anything you're seeing how to process it and innkeepers you're not most of the time you're not seeing anything it's just you know you're it's making your brain play tricks on you but in this one it's like you're processing it then you process what it is and that that doesn't free you from the experience that just makes it worse And well, then he smartly cuts of, um, away. Yeah. Then he smartly ends it at that point. You know. So you, you're you're stuck with it. Sorry. Go ahead. No. No. Uh, I totally agree. And it reminds me of um, Mike Flanagan and like um, yes, yeah, the Haunting of Hill House mm-hmm. and Bly Manor on Netflix, where like you can rewatch that show and not spot all of the weirdness in the background, even if you're rewatching episodes, because there's just like a pair of feet under a table that you didn't notice the first time. And then there's the feet and the camera just keeps moving or the scene just changes and you get no, you never understand exactly what you just saw. You never understand why it was there. You don't know if it's going to come back. Um, Yeah. It's like the hidden, the hidden ghosts and, and exactly what you guys are saying where it forces you to lean in and continue to engage rather than, like hide behind your hands and like peek through your fingers. Mm. Flanagan's... My, my, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go no, ahead. I was just going to say Flanagan is a really uh, interesting comparison because I, I agree, but it seems like his stuff is almost like the antithesis of this movie because... Oh, yeah. Yeah, his, tonally it's extremely different. Yeah, than... <laughs> tonally it's a lot more positive in the end. Like his stories are mm-hmm. generally not, well, at least uh, Hill House and Bly Manor, they're not cynical stories at, its, at their heart. And he probably because he's doing 13 episodes of TV, is giving you all the backstory as as much as you can possibly <laughs> handle. Um, yeah, but he's still doing these sort of these these family stories sure, of sure. families who are deeply dysfunctional and have undergone a lot of trauma. So uh, yeah, I think, I think they're an interesting study. They're another case where you can compare uh, Hereditary to another horror property and see what you can see. Yeah, definitely. Wes, what were you saying? I um I think Astor just has like this sublime understanding of what personally makes me very unsettled by things because <laughs> well I said that the the scariest shot is He's the just naked emailing guy back and forth with Amy the all the time. <laughs> <laughs> my uh 
Amy still is upset that I made her watch this movie. She's she she oh. couldn't go, she couldn't go to bed the second time because she's like I can't go upstairs by nice. myself while this is happening. <laughs> and the, my second scariest thing that I think would be like an amazing gift is the uh, the portrait of the grandmother just sitting in a chair is the scariest fucking picture of a woman I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. It's so he, I don't know what he did for that woman, but. The, the, her portrait and when Annie is flicking through the uh, the the picture, the photo album, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all those pictures are deeply terrifying to me. It's like <laughs> you know that there's this cult that's going on there and this blank stare on this woman's face. And if, like, if I had that picture and I hung it in my bedroom, I don't think I'd be able to sleep at night because of yeah. the thing looking down at me. Yeah. He just has this really, really... Uh, very personal to me sense of like what makes an image terrifying and he runs with it fairly effectively and it never gets old or it never gets like tired that that's what he's doing it's always just just there everything's very unsettling yeah 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 the um uh, picture pictures (laughs) it's the scariest group of pictures of a bunch of 50 year old people having like a house party i've ever seen yeah, there's something just deep. It's not that, nothing that they're doing there is unsettling, but just knowing what's going on is like, what the hell is what the hell is this? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 an inherent creepiness to to the history of of photos. Like it, it's there's a reason that hundred year old photos are are a go to for creepy haunted houses and shit. It's because there's just something otherworldly about them, and there's a context to them that you don't have any understanding of. There's a photo of the cult looking at a photo of the family, which is my favorite yes, photo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I missed that one. Oh, damn. Yeah. It's like the family is in the foreground with the Utah mountains in the background. And in the foreground of the picture you're looking at, you can see the heads of the cult members right. looking at that oh, picture. Right. God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Unsettling <laughs> to say the least. Um, yeah. But yeah, going back to the to the, to the the headshot, um, how do you guys feel about this because the first time i watched it i had a reaction that i very rarely get and i'm always kind of tickled when it happens which is a combination of oh my god that was awful and oh my god that was hilarious i knew it i knew you were gonna say you laughed because well i didn't laugh though (laughs) like i i just kind of like gasped and like put my hand over my mouth because it's such sure 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 it is so abrupt so out of nowhere and it is so over the top like i just didn't know how to process it and what isn't it actually based on like a real story I don't know. The closest I can think of is that's how the the one armed bus driver in, in The Simpsons lost his arm is by sticking his arm out the bus bus window. <laughs> and that's why you always leave a note. Yeah, that's why you never. <laughs> that's why you never turn on the air conditioning and leave the doors open. I I find I I th- I also laughed at the um I didn't do it the second time I don't maybe because I knew it was coming but I also laughed the fir- I remember laughing the first time when he uh, Peter bashes his face into the desk and oh, then sure. it just sits on the ground screaming Ooh. I thought that was kind of funny the first time for some reason um, it is a it is it is just kind of the shockingness I guess of it uh, something I noticed on the second time is that there's a sigil of the cult yes. on the telephone pole yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. but do you- which is foreshadowing i suppose do, do you feel do you feel like it's too much like i i don't know where to come down on it because it's just for a movie that up until the last 
I don't know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of the movie is fairly restrained. It's a very uh, jacket up to 11 kind of it's not really a gore sequence, but like the idea the idea of somebody sticking their head out a window and getting their head cut off by a telephone pole feels more like Quentin Tarantino than uh Ari Aster, you know? <laughs> I th- I think it's just the 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 thing that I take away from that whole sequence is that it, it's just more of Aster being like and I guess the just to say like I'm kind of rem- it's remarkable this is his first feature. Oh, um, yes, absolutely. Like yeah. he, he's oh, very God, good. Yeah. And the thing that sticks with me about that whole sequence is that the party sequence leading to the telephone pole accident, I, lo- I find the party sequence to be the mark of a great director because he nailed a kind of um, nervous energy to high school parties. Mm. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like he's smoking pot. You're sort of having like uh, the nervousness that comes along with that is being piled onto you. And it's like this paranoia is building. She starts choking on things. She comes in and just stands there and is like wheezing and staring yeah. at him and stuff like yeah. that. It's all <laughs> deeply, deeply weird. And it makes you almost like think that the whole thing is allergy. It's the nut allergy, which is uh, the hammer home by having that teen just aggressively just chopping aggressively nuts to make that cake. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, <laughs> and that was a little absurd. That's, that's like, that feels like uh, you know, film student who just learned how Hitchcock's idea of suspense works, right. where it's like Chekhov's <laughs> Chekhov's walnuts, where he's like bringing attention <laughs> to the massive mound of walnuts that are. It's like, yeah. yeah, those are gonna be used somehow. Where yeah. are they gonna come up? <laughs> That's the studio now, because Tony Collette does mention the nut allergy in the opening scene, too. Right, right. So it's yeah. not, it's yeah. not like they are kind of laying it on to you to realize what's going on. But I think it just leads to the whole dream sequence thing where eventually the telephone pole happens. And one thing that I just I think I've never seen in any other movie is his drive home where yes. he never checks on what happened yeah. and then goes to bed. And then in the background, you hear... Annie waking up and being like, oh, I'll go to the car and get some mail, and then screaming when she finds the decapitated body of her daughter, which then also just goes into the, the family never talks about it. There, there's never yeah. a scene where they talk about what happened, and it just goes to show how disconnected from each other they are and that they can't talk to each other about literally anything, even the death of one of them. Mm. Yeah, and they just continue, like, <laughs> like Peter, like his mother, just continues to sort of avoid the reality like like he kind of half glances in the rearview mirror and there's a great moment later on in the movie where mm, he yeah. kind of does the same thing and like sees briefly her headless body in the rearview mirror he's in school again. like he's in school when yeah happens, yeah when yeah. he's just sitting at his desk it's great um but yeah I, I, so this scene for me <laughs> like i have a younger brother who's he's seven years younger than me and he has a nut allergy. And this is just like every... It's like a the worst nightmare that I didn't know I had. <laughs> like, like I would take him somewhere or give him something and he would go into like anaphylactic shock oh, and his throat would yeah, close. Yikes. And yeah. Yeah. So every time I see this scene, I'm just like horrified for Peter. Even before <laughs> the decapitation happens, I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> He's really lucky that you never drove him anywhere while you were on Angel Dust or whatever Peter was on. So, <laughs> not that he knows of, at least. <laughs> it's the other nerve wracking. Yes, yeah, the other nerve. I just find that a very tense scene, really. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. And the the telephone pole is like the least of it, I suppose. Um, yeah. It's just one I, thing. I. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Well, the, the only thing I thought was unnecessary was when they actually showed the picture of her head on the ground. Mm. Um, it was yeah. shocking the first time, but I didn't think it was necessary the second time. I think it's better. It's it's done better through Annie's miniatures. Yeah. Because mm. yeah. we get it through there. I don't think we also need like I, I'm sure they had like this budget or these amazing guys who were doing kind of the gore effects for the last portion of the movie and they were like well we got to have them do something like we got we, we can't pass up this opportunity for this awesome severed head well but i think it's the um, ants right the ants are what connect them because she has the dream where peter's covered in ants oh later that's on. right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. well i i assume yeah. the reason they cut to the to the head on the road is because they have the head on that like sculpture they make at the end there yeah, um, the, little, uh, oh, the, yeah. The, the, so, the mannequin of payment or whatever right yeah so i assumed it was just to <laughs> to link those two things um one thing I, I noticed the second time when they look at the picture of payment in the book he has three heads on his belt and there's three headless bodies at the end of the movie oh which no is kidding nice, oh. nice touch yeah. notice that yeah. yeah um yeah the i think i think the thing that sells it is over the top as that sequence is is the way that he 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 follows through with it because the drive home is so react it's it's like the drive home in that sequence you're talking about west where where you just hear them uh you hear tony collette scream the next day it's like what else could you really do like you it, i think if you for peter you mean or who for who just just like as far as like as far as like how you play that out and not have it not have it seem like overwrought and like overly dramatic or over the top or something like that it's like the reactions that the reaction that he follows through with which is peter driving home in that like i can't believe that just happened state through not seeing not seeing it happen but hearing tony collette find the body it's like that's the best possible way you could have done that decapitation thing and then paid it off with what happens next. Cause like if he had stopped the car and got out and then was like, Oh my God, Charlie. <laughs> oh no. Like it, that, that's, that's not gonna, that, that's just going to come off as, as hacky. And so I think it's, it's just, it's, it's the, the, the shock of the decapitation plus the thing that follows is what I think makes it work. Yeah. I think, I think it's just the, thematically for me, it's just the denial. Like he right, does right. not want to look back and yeah. see what's going on. It says the family's built on denial. He goes to bed as if nothing happened. He obviously doesn't sleep at all that night. And then, yeah. <laughs> then the scene ends and it's a denial of the filmmaker to show you what the grief process is for them because they go on as if nothing happened until the dinner scene where they all blow up at each other. It's the same. Yeah, and- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and Peter's also been like, smoking weed all night and partying right yes like so this the sense the sense of unreality that he must have about the whole thing is compounded by the fact that he is in an altered state of mind right so like none of this really feels fully real to him and that's that's really clear and honestly i felt bad for his game though where he offered the girl to smoke and then she's like yeah i'll smoke and she's like here's a group of 50 of my friends it's like oh you yeah Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've been there. Not exactly like that, but no, similar. that's a, that's a, that's a, she played him dirty. He led that's, him into that, uh, led him into that. Bad that's cave. the the weed version of you want to go to the movies, and she shows up with like three friends, right? Um, <laughs> but wants to watch Hereditary. Yes, yeah. But I'll tell you that 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 level of denial that Peter has, I feel that's the same level of denial I have any time that I like blow my nose and then throw the tissue at the basket and miss. 
It's like, <laughs> I didn't see it. I'm just going to walk away. I was going to say it's the same as, it's, it doesn't happen frequently, obviously, but it's like if you're driving a car backing up and you hear a crunch, yeah. and you're like, ah, you that's cycle, probably snowbank, right? That's not, you cycle, that's not, nothing. You that's cycle nothing. through like 50 things it could be, decide it's none of them, and just keep driving. <laughs> and then just drive away. Yeah. <laughs> and then your father comes down the next day and says, what the fuck happened to the back of the bumper? Yeah. Um, the last thing that I wanted to mention, we don't have to talk about this at length, but I just thought it was interesting. Uh, it's only really stood out to me because we've done a fair number of these more independent or art house horror movies on, on the show. What is it with these art house movies and witches? We've got House of the Devil, The Witch, this movie, Hansel and Gretel. We haven't done all these. Uh, Autopsy of Jane you Doe. You call them witches in here? I guess I guess maybe we're just playing loose with the term of a witch. Well, yeah. I mean, they, they we're, are... We're very charming. Okay. They are a... a, a, a group or a coven of people if you will who are calling forth a demon i guess i would say like witch slash demonic cult kind of thing it just seems okay, like they yeah. pops yeah, I, up I, would, a lot. I guess because there's men in the cult at the end so um i guess that cancels it out to be a witch for me i suppose hey man witches and warlocks it's all the same it's all the same it's, an, it's, an, it's a new new world for yeah. everybody but it's you know <laughs> house of the devil uh Autopsy of Jane Doe, Starry Eyes, the the Love Witch. It's it seems to be the the demonic cult slash witch coven, uh, which who may or may not be naked because a lot of times they end up being naked. Even dark uh, a dark song to some extent is yeah. kind of in that in that same genre. Definitely with the naked the people. Occultist at the occultist yeah. stuff. It what what do you think it is drawing these these art house movies to this stuff specifically? It's low budget and terrifying. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's and it's kind of the opposite of. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons, but I, th- I think partially it's it's sort of like recognizably horror with all of the trappings and and assumptions that come with that, without it being like dude in a mask killing people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's like one one of the one of the buckets that people keep bringing back to the well because it's effective. It's it's effective in a lot of ways in that it brings up themes of like pride and hubris and greed mm. and hungering for power and, and humans kind of bringing this on themselves and the horrible things people are willing to do to one another in order to get these, you know, riches or or abilities that they want. I think there's a lot of different reasons why it comes up again and again. Yeah, it is kind of the. Th- also, it's low budget and scary. Yeah, it it is kind of the uh, 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 the uh, high class horror seems to be the thinking man's horror these days seems to be more uh, occultists and witches and stuff like that. Which I pre- it's it's nice because I like it because it has one foot in what you're saying, Amanda, where there's a lot of interesting thematic stuff you can deal with, but then the other mm-hmm. foot is just firmly in like grindhouse schlocky horror movies of the 60s basically (laughs) which is i think to speak to what you're saying wes there's a lot of witch movies and cult movies in the 70s because capes are really cheap yeah yeah Yeah, i I guess it's it's you against society too sure sure it's um you know it's one thing to be fighting a demon and it's another thing to be fighting a demon Mm. when he has an army of believers behind him Mm, as well mm. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I think it just further isolates you and makes it seem like everything is out to get you. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. And I think the visual trappings are fun, too. Like, you know, you've got like crazy symbols and weird words carved into walls. It's very like spooky. Yeah. And a bunch of dudes bending over on all fours, with their balls yeah. sticking out between their legs. I'm like, this is this is horror. That must have been a, that must have been a long day for That's those the guys. Scariest scene. I only um the, the final sequence. I only oh, and we haven't even talked about Anne Dowd in this movie. Oh, who's right, yeah, fantastic. But I mean the the ending scene. Um, it took me the second time to realize that it was actually Charlie's head on the thing. I'm I'm shocked it took oh, really? me two watches to realize that. I thought it was just a mannequin head the first time. Oh yeah, I think yeah. Um, that that it made me think this time. Did they never get the head? Like, because if the if the coven has the head, does that mean that the body was buried without a head? Because yeah, they, and well, he says that. Oh, she does. Oh, I missed yeah, that. Yeah, okay. and he has a line where she says they couldn't have an open casket or something because the head was gone. Oh. Uh, so it's, they were digging up the grandmother and finding the head on right. the side of the road. Hey, yeah. that's wow. That's good efficiency for a coven of witches, I guess. Yeah, I also they're never, in good shape for a bunch of old people. Yeah, yeah. And I never realized uh, something very creepy in one of the final shots when things start going crazy. Uh, there's a shot of the exterior of the house, and you can see the cult members standing in the dark around the house. Yeah. Oh, you can! Oh, I didn't notice yeah. that. Yeah, I love that shot. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a it's a it's a great movie. Um, and I guess to to wrap it up, the it's number eighteen on the list. How do you guys feel about the placement? Mm-hmm. Do you think it should be closer to one, closer to two hundred, or removed entirely? I have a feeling it's not going to be that. Uh, Wes. Okay. I came into this not knowing its placement, and I said top twenty. So it seems it seems fine to me where it is. Yeah, Amanda. Yeah, I might I might put it more twenty to thirty. Um, so not far off from where it is, but I I just feel like there there are probably a couple things further down on the list that I would uh, shift up ahead of this one just for their longevity and their sort of like genre impact over time. But yeah, I I definitely would keep this top 30 top 25 yeah yeah is midsummer on the on the list uh i believe it is let me look real uh mid- well i hope so because i i meant to see that one and then we all got trapped in our houses <laughs> for i prefer know. this one over midsummer uh, oh yeah, oh, interesting. yeah I, I just think this is a better movie uh midsummer is number 49 that's too high not to spoil <laughs> yeah that that's too high but like um yeah i i just think this is a much better uh movie than midsummer um it's a good debut not that midsummer is bad and that it makes you go like oh maybe Ari Aster is just a, a one-trick pony or something but I, I just think that this this one is more scary than that and I guess okay if you're ranking um movies based on like the variables of scariness and stuff like this is like an 11 out of 10 for me in terms of scariness mm-hmm. uh it's like theme would you know knock it down beneath Babadook and stuff like that but I think the uh, the scariness factor is what bumps it up to me to be a top twenty horror movie. Yeah, I would I would put this. I would agree with Amanda. I would say probably twenties to thirties because I think there's there's just so many. I don't know if I would jump it that far up, but this also of the more modern ones we've seen, this is the most deserving of its high placement on the list. I think. Oh yeah, um, I would I would say if this was this if you're talking about like independent or or even just any horror movies that have come out in the last like 10 or so years this is probably number one yeah yeah i mean it's you've you've got 
stuff like Us and Get Out and The Invisible Man and A Quiet Place are all in the top 10, I would probably remove most, if not all of those and switch those them out. Those aren't scary enough is the problem. Yeah. <clears throat> like I think, I think uh, uh, this is... It's Get prob- Out is an 11 out of 10 out of theme or concept. Yes, And yes. it's not as scary. It's like and the I, opposite of what I was saying about Hereditary. And I, w- I would also say Get Out and Us are probably more conceptually unique. Yeah. But I think this is kind of firing on all cylinders in a way that it's not It's not like the enjoyable kind of scary movie where it's like, ooh, let's all hang out and watch yeah. Hereditary. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, this this reminded me, sorry, not to interrupt, no, but this ahead. reminded me of when we did um, A Dark Song, which was my wild card. And Clay, you were like, I did not enjoy this movie. Yeah. Like, this is a good movie, but I did not enjoy watching it. I enjoy watching Hereditary just... a lot more than I enjoyed watching a dark Star. Yeah, which which is which is fair, which is fair. But it definitely it it reminded me of that where it's not like like we talked about how you can watch like Cabin in the Woods because it's kind of quippy and fun right, at, po- right. at points and and this is not that. This is a tough one to put on in the background while you're doing something else, you know. Right, or if you have a bunch of friends over. Yeah, yeah. I just have um I just have one thing that I learned about this movie. The uh, the house is a set, I learned, yeah. which is Damn. kind of obvious once you know it and you look at it. You go, oh, it's clearly a set. But mm-hmm. they they built the house for the movie, and the house matches the miniature miniatures, obviously. And um, I was just – I guess it's most surprising because when we watched it the first time, me and Amy were both like, what a fantastic house. I know. This is just the yeah. greatest yeah. house I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and – it makes a little bit more sense when you realize that it's a dollhouse and that they are toys in some greater powers uh, play right, box and right. stuff like that. But it, it is kind yeah. of a, a unique look to everything. I I found I did think it stood out a little bit because I was like, you know, that's a really kind of classic mid or like Victorian kind of interior to an exterior that feels very modern. This doesn't seem to jive very well, but yeah. it is. Uh, it's an unbelievable house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's going to do it for Hereditary. Uh, I hit the randomizer button, beep, boop, boop, beep, boop, 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 beep, boop, and next time we will be doing number 141, which is Brian De Palma's Sisters, which I've seen once a very long time ago, huh. and I am looking forward to watching again because Brian De Palma, movie, Brian De Palma movies are, if nothing else, fun to watch. So, Sister, sister, right. yes, how much I missed It you. actually <laughs> stars the uh, the Maori sisters, so... And they both is that Raven yeah. and her sister, <laughs> Tia and Tamara, baby. Tia and Tamara, that's, that's right. Sorry, who's Raven? Is that they were on that so Raven, right? Is that that show? Uh, Raven Simone from Cosby. I don't. I don't remember what. I don't remember who else. Was oh, on was her it, show. maybe that's what I'm confusing. Okay. Well, she maybe, also did yeah. have her show, which was that. So why do I know this much about mid 2000s <laughs> UPN shows? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Spinoffs I'm of the confused. Cosby's. Yeah, every every Cosby spinoff is something that uh, I've done a podcast on. I think. Yes, yeah, oof, yeah, we'll be there for a while. Although, and final point, yeah. I thought A twenty four, the production distributor of mm-hmm. this, I was like, oh, well, this must be a nice little big hit for them. They've produced an incredible amount of great movies. Oh yeah, no, it's yeah. I, yeah. Unfortunately, they've kind of become, I think, a at least on Twitter, it's become a bit of a joke that people who like A24 movies are like movie snobs. But it's mm. like, man, they make good <laughs> fucking movies. Like, It's kind of undeniable how good the movies they make. Uh, just for people yeah. who don't know, like I'm just looking at it quickly, it's like uh, Tusk, 
which you know maybe not a great movie. A mm. most violent yeah. year. Yep. Ex Machina, one yep. of my favorite sci-fi oh, movies. That's a great movie. Uh, what is here? There's uh, Green Room, mm-hmm. Moonlight. Moonlight is oh, yeah. a big mm-hmm. movie. Did they do uh, uh, Lady Bird? Oh yeah, yep. Did they do um, the other, the follow-up from the Ex Machina guy with Natalie Portman? It, the name is slipping me. Oh, it, Annihilation? Annihilation. Let me see. Annihil. No, they no. didn't. That's based on a great book, by the I've way. I've heard the book is excellent, yes. Uncut Gems. I will happily lend it to you. Uncut Gems is their most recent movie. Oh, damn. Yeah, I mean, they make good movies. So Yeah. Yeah. But uh, So we're all movie snobs. Yes, yes. But uh, yeah, that's going to do it. Um, thank you for joining us, Wes. If you want to come back for The Babadook, we can expand this conversation to The Babadook if you'd like. Sure, I can talk about hereditary when yeah. I'm talking yeah. about the Babadook. Because um, I feel like Amanda has, a, I feel like me and Amanda have different points of view about the Babadook, but we didn't want yes. to talk about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Just dancing around the argument we're going to have in a it was, few it was weeks. A, a light fencing match with our, uh, with our, with our rapiers. Well, we, we'll get into it then once once we hit uh, Babadook, which is actually also very high on the list. I think Babadook is like number 13 or something like that. It's very high. Oh, yeah. yeah that's that's very high. Uh, Amanda, thank you for joining us as always. Thank you, Clay. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, we've got, uh, I don't know exactly when this is coming out, but if you want to follow our Patreon, we're doing for the Friday the 13th series in March, we have part three in 3D coming out. And if this is April when this comes out, uh, we will have part four the final friday i forget what the subtitle is all the subtitles of these movies make no sense because they keep remaking them Um, but uh thank you thank you guys for listening and we will catch you next time bye everyone